Today's podcast is brought to you by PNC, supporting early education, racial and social justice, and economic development through programming within the communities we serve. Greetings. Welcome to episode four of the Kaleidoscope podcast. I'm your host, Nick DeCorvo. As we've dedicated time to platforming those that need a louder voice, this episode will also focus on the works published within our magazine. For those unfamiliar, UDS is a nonprofit agency based out of Akron, Ohio. Our mission is to provide and support life-enriching options through person-centered programs and advocacy. Kaleidoscope magazine is a publication of UDS. Beginning in 1979, Kaleidoscope is a pioneer in providing visibility to the experience of disability through literature and fine arts. Works published in our magazine include fiction, personal essays, poetry, and more. Since 2022, we've expanded this visibility to our podcast. This time around, we've got selections from issue 86 of our magazine, which focuses on discovering unexpected truths. We can find unexpected truths throughout many moments of our lives. While they can sometimes be hard to swallow, it can often be revelatory as well. We've got a lot of exciting readings for this episode, and I'd like to take a moment to thank our contributors to issue 86. Without you, this podcast would not be possible. First up, we're taking a listen to Dating My Doctors by Stephanie Harper. Within this essay, Harper explores the world of medicine through a critical comparison to dating. For those that have had a hard time relating or interacting with their doctor, they may find themselves heavily relating to Harper's positions. Dating My Doctors by Stephanie Harper. Once, my neurologist at the time, came up in the People You May Know section on Facebook. This creeped me out in the same way as Tinder matching me with a guy from my church who had a girlfriend. I did not friend my doctor. I also did not swipe right in case you were wondering. The doctor-patient relationship is strange. It's intimate. My doctors know more about me than a lot of my acquaintances, but it's only in a small space within the whole of my life, only in exam rooms or hospital beds. It's almost as though these doctors don't actually exist once I get out to the parking lot after my appointment. Then I'm reminded they have things like Facebook, Blind dates. I went on a date once with a reptile-obsessed amateur zoologist who wore socks with his sandals and spent the entire date talking about his female friend whom he was very clearly in love with. Meeting a new specialist is kind of like that. It's hard for me not to enter that first meeting with a sense of foreboding. I don't know this person, if they like me, if they will believe me, even listen to me. Anytime I enter a new exam room, I have prepared myself for frustration and disappointment. Also, it's probably going to be awkward as hell. Online dating. With Medicaid, finding a specialist is often exactly like perusing online dating profiles. There are so few specialists who accept Medicaid that I'm often unable to see the person my doctor recommends. I have to go to the Colorado Peak website and find someone who might work. I go to their websites and read their biographies. There's always a headshot type photo. If I like what I see, 
I'll get a referral and make an appointment. It's not at all uncommon to wait three to six months, sometimes longer, to see someone new. But in the lifespan of a chronic illness, where every day is more the same, what difference does it make really? I've gotten very good at waiting and hoping this next person will have something new and different and helpful for me. It turns out in medicine, as in dating, there's often no such thing as the one. One of these first dates comes two years after my headache has started. I land myself an appointment at the University of Colorado Hospital Headache Clinic. This feels significant, like I'm taking a step up in the medical world, a research hospital. One night stand, when you have tried as many drug treatments as I have, you spend a lot of time at the pharmacy. I like my pharmacy a lot. It's at my local Safeway, making it easy to shop for groceries while I wait for my prescription. My whole family has been using it for years and everyone knows us. I appreciate the familiarity, even if it also points to the fact that, as a frequent flyer, I have a reason for everyone to know me by name. I take a lot of medications, so I have multiple prescriptions that I refill regularly. But there's also always those prescriptions I need for an acute illness or just to try out, the one-timers. Once my neurologist prescribed me antivirals, just in case my headache was related to some kind of latent viral infection. It turns out that more and more research is suggesting that many chronic illnesses perhaps begin with some kind of infection. I learn all about this later when I test positive for reactivated Epstein-Barr virus. Meeting the parents. It seems like everyone has their own rule on when it's the right time for a significant other to meet the parents. This is true for my doctors also. I also bring my mother to the emergency room with me. Since my new daily persistent headache began almost five years ago, I felt the need to always have someone in the room with me. In fact, I usually bring someone, usually my mother, along when I meet a new doctor. It makes me feel more secure in my being there and as though an outside witness is required in order to make my case seem more believable. They don't even have to speak. Just their presence seems to add legitimacy to my chronic illness history. She has a really high pain tolerance, my mother told the emergency room doctor. Like really high. He had just asked me the level of my headache pain and I had told him a nine. He must have made a face, raised a skeptical eyebrow at my perceived calm because my mother felt the need to jump in and come to my defense to attest to the validity of my reported symptoms. This is why I brought her, for added support. Breaking up. Sometimes you have to break up with your doctors. It's okay to get to a point where you have to admit to yourself that you're just not a good fit or that things aren't working anymore. Most doctors understand there are limits to what they can do for you. And sometimes the best you can do is take your care elsewhere. People leave their doctors for a number of benign reasons too, from a change in address to new insurance. It happens. And sometimes your doctors break up with you. When this happens, you try not to take it personally, but you will grieve anyway. I've been seeing this particular neurologist for somewhere around a year when it happens. You've tried several treatments and nothing has helped with the pain. It's frustrating for both of us, but I've been good and vigilant about trying everything he suggests and keeping a positive attitude. I haven't even cried in his office as I have learned that sometimes this scares doctors away or just renders a suggestion for antidepressants. My longest relationship. 
I don't mean to sound like all my experiences with doctors have been negative. They haven't. The person I really want to talk about is my PCP. He's been my doctor for somewhere close to 15 years at this point. The longest relationship with a doctor I've had. He's been unwavering in his support of me and my situation, a major advocate. He's also just a genuinely nice human being. He says, oh shoot, when I describe whatever symptoms have brought me in. And he likes to jokingly refer to me as his challenge. Once when he was doing a neurological exam, he said, squeeze my fingers and show me what you can do. Within Courtney B. Cook's story, Meeting Ryan, the narrator prepares to meet her friend's boyfriend for the first time. When we are younger, this can be a particularly stressful experience. Will this change our friendship? What is going to be different from here on out? As we all grow older, many may find it easier to accept that all things will change. Meeting Ryan by Courtney B. Cook I see things clearer, or at least more logically, than most people. That may not sound like a big deal, but it's frustrating. Very, very frustrating. Mostly because I'm not as blinded by emotion as other people. I have an objective perspective on most situations, but people, they just don't listen to me. Are you listening to me, Natalie? My best friend Destiny asks, her voice pitched higher than usual in annoyance. I shake my head, clearing away my intrusive thoughts. I'm sorry, I got distracted, I admit. It's so loud in here. That's not a lie. People's conversations and shouts echo in the school cafeteria, a messy blend of voices screaming, yelling, and hollering. Dishes clank against each other, and every once in a while, there's a screech as someone scoots their chair back from a table. The noise is overwhelming, and I can't help but feel a little claustrophobic. So I think you should meet Ryan, Destiny's raised voice brings me back to our table. I sigh. Your new boyfriend. Of course that's what she was talking about. I mean, are you sure? You don't think it's too soon? You guys just started dating, what, four weeks ago? Of course, she grabs my hand. You're my best friend and your opinion really matters to me. She hesitates. Plus, you always have a good sense about people and you always look at situations objectively. I smile, a warm feeling rising in my chest. And besides, talking about boys is what best friends are for, right? She laughs, high and clear, and I can tell it's a genuine laugh. So, do you want to meet him tomorrow? We could meet up at the park after school at our usual table. As much as I don't want to meet Destiny's boyfriend, I do want what's best for her. And if that means meeting her boyfriend and judging him for her... Okay, sounds like a plan. Awesome! The bell rings, making me jump. Destiny's chair scratches backwards as she leaps up and gathers our dishes. Come on, let's go to class! She grabs my hand and drags me through the crowd of people that are stampeding to the exit. I hate being among the crush of bodies, with all the yelling and the smells, all in close quarters. Luckily, Destiny is an expert at maneuvering us through the crowd, and before long, we've escaped the masses and are on our way to class. The rest of the day goes by as usual. Same old boring routine, except that I can't get my mind off meeting Ryan. I honestly don't know what Destiny has told him about me, and I just feel like no matter what, it's going to be awkward. Who am I kidding? It's always awkward for me when I meet new people. Destiny comes and finds me after school the next day, and by that point, my anxiety is jumping through the roof. I slip on my sunglasses and try to play it cool as we walk over to the park. She squeezes my hand way too tight as we walk, but I know she's just excited. I can practically feel the energy radiating off her as she blabbers on and on. Finally, I manage to get a word in edgewise. What does he look like? I ask her. 
She lets out an excited squeak that sounds like a mouse. Well, he's about the same height as you, and he has long, longish brown hair. He has these beautiful green eyes. She squeezes my hand tighter, and making me wonder whether or not my hand will still be attached to my arm when we get to the park. We walk a little farther and turn into the park. The path changes from hard concrete sidewalk to gravelly dirt that crunches underfoot. Birds tweet overhead in the trees, and I can even hear squirrels chittering at each other and scampering around. I inhale, enjoying the scent of freshly cut grass and a cool afternoon breeze. I inhale again, sniffing the air. It's going to rain. Destiny sighs. Ugh, of course, she stops. Okay, you stay here at our picnic table and I'll go see if I can find him. That way we have it covered, whether he comes here or I run into him. Maybe we can go to the ice cream shop or something so we don't get rained on. Sound good? Yep, I reply and slide onto the bench of the picnic table. I freeze. But how will I know if it's him if he comes by? Oh, I've shown him pictures of the two of us together, so he should be able to recognize you. Her footsteps crunch on the gravel as she walks away. Oh yeah, and you can ask him what my middle name is. He knows, she calls, her voice fading as she leaves. Wow, I murmur, picking pokey wood splendors off the table. Destiny must really like him if she already told him her middle name. It took her forever to tell me what her middle name was. It's not like it's super embarrassing, just weird. It's kind of nice to listen to the sounds of the park without Destiny talking so much. Children laugh nearby and I can pick out different bird songs, separating them from each other in my mind. A dog barks somewhere in the distance. The most prominent sound is probably the wind wrestling the trees. Either that or footsteps crunching on gravel as people walk by. I start to hum as I pick at the splintering wood on the picnic table. The crack as I break off the splinters is really satisfying. The wind brushes against me, pushing my hair in my face, and I can't help but smile. Hey, you're Natalie, right? The deep voice next to me makes me jump, pulling me out of my thoughts, and I turn toward him. I hadn't even heard his footsteps as he approached. I am. Are you Ryan? Yep, that's me. The bench creaks as he sits down. It's nice to meet you, Natalie. Where's Destiny? Looking for you, I answer, fiddling self-consciously with my sunglasses before going back to picking at the table. A sharper splinter stabs me, and I wince. I tilt my head. Destiny said I could ask you what her middle name is to prove it's actually you and not some random weirdo. Ryan laughs, and it's a deep, full laugh. It's Allegra. Her parents chose it because of its Italian meaning without thinking about the medicine. I nod and grin. Poor girl. The bench creaks again as Ryan leads forward. So why is Destiny looking for me? I thought we were just going to meet here and hang out. It's going to rain, I explain. We were talking about moving to the ice cream place, just in case. He hesitates. But the forecast didn't say anything about rain. Smell, I tell him, and I hear him inhale and exhale. Do you smell that dampness in the air? It's definitely going to rain. Ryan sniffs again. I can smell it, barely. That's so cool. Ryan! Destiny's voice carries across the park, as does the sound of her running feet. She stops next to the table, out of breath. She spoke between huffs. I've been looking for you. She puts a hand on my arm as her breathing grows closer to normal. I'm glad you guys are doing good. Let's head over to that ice cream shop. The table creaks as Ryan gets up and I slide off my side of the bench. Lead the way, Destiny. Now I get to judge Ryan and see if he's right for my best friend. Destiny hooks her arm in mine. Rock on your right, she tells me, and I sidestep neatly out of the way. I'll get your cane out of your backpack in a second, she adds. Wait, what? Ryan asks, his confusion evident in his voice. 
I laugh, hitting Destiny's arm. You didn't tell him. You must have done a good job being subtle, Destiny says, and I can hear the grin in her voice. Tell me what, Ryan asks impatiently. I raise an eyebrow and turn toward his voice. Tell you that I'm blind. Fionn Pulsifer's book review in issue 86 of Kaleidoscope analyzes the work Being Human, a repentant memoir of a disability rights activist. Pulsifer reminds readers and listeners of the journey many underrepresented people need to make in order to have their voices heard. How to Make a Fuss, a review of Judith Human's Being Human, Finn Pulsifer. Human's memoir, Being Human, is a brilliantly told recounting of her determined fight for accessibility. She describes for us her first experiences with discrimination and segregation from childhood to her teen years. She explains why and how she sued the New York Board of Education for her right to teach. She details how she moved back and forth across the country following the fight for disabled rights. Human was instrumental in the shaping and success of the disability rights movement. She was constantly in the thick of it, constantly the most determined person in the room. Human obliterated obstacles and left a trail of accessibility in her wake. One aspect of Human's memoir I found particularly interesting is her constant and subtle analysis of her own standing in the world. Human reminds us consistently that she is a disabled Jewish woman and each of these identities influenced her life in different ways. In the prologue to her novel, Human explains that her parents grew up in an occupied Germany and each immigrated to America as children. In what Human calls Hitler's pilot project for mass genocide, German doctors encouraged parents to hand their young children over to pediatric clinics where they were either intentionally starved or given a lethal injection. Human believes that when they were confronted with a recommendation to institutionalize her from a well-meaning doctor, her parents' experience with the Nazi party informed their decision. They had personally experienced, she explains, what happens when an entire country chooses not to see something simply because it is not what they wish to see. The violent oppression humans' parents both witnessed and experienced shaped their characters and their beliefs, which, in turn, shaped humans' life. Their experience taught them to be vocal in the face of oppression. They taught her to value and stand up for herself. Her mother fought relentlessly against the discrimination keeping human from public school. Human's mother taught her how to make a fuss. Human doesn't dwell on discrimination. Though her life's work was an anti-discrimination movement, resulting in numerous anti-discrimination laws for disabled people, Human focused on where she was going, not what was in her way. This is also true of the sexism she faced. Though she does not dwell, she does examine how sexism shaped her career. After founding the World Institute on Disability with two peers, Joan Lynn and Ed Roberts, Human found herself pushed out of the co-director position she shared with these colleagues in favor of one director, Ed. There had been no process, no discussion with them at all. The men on the board, and it was mostly men, had simply made a decision. Human believes they may have made the right decision as he is a good fit for the position, but is troubled by the implications. She tells us that she did not push herself forward in the same way Ed did. She did not presume privilege. She relates to us the conflict many determined, passionate, and ambitious women face, being raised to be loud while being raised to be quiet. Human spent her life standing up for herself while simultaneously being deferential to men, even when she didn't mean to be. Adding to this conflict is the fact that the women's movement has, historically, been exclusionary. 
Mainstream feminism throughout its history has ignored disabled women, black women, LGBT women, and essentially anyone who did not fall within the tight restraints of what was considered a respectable woman when the movement began. As Human explains, disabled women were always pushing to be recognized by the women's movement, but were left basically on their own. I would love to hear more about Human's interactions with and thoughts about the women's movement. Human strikes me as a powerful voice for civil rights in any form, and I wonder if she ever had the opportunity to focus her energy on the intersection of ableism and sexism. Hers is a viewpoint that I believe would be invaluable to feminism's trajectory. What struck me most about Human's character, other than her unending energy and deep commitment to civil rights, was her humor. One can easily tell Human relishes the wittier moments in the disabled rights movement. An example of this comes from the chapter The White House, where Human recounts the last leg of the push to get Health, Education, and Welfare Secretary Joseph Califano to sign the Section 504 regulations, which would provide the Civil Rights Clause with some teeth, so to speak. Human and a few colleagues left their sit-in at the San Francisco Hue offices to lobby for the regulations in Washington, D.C. Once there, they met with some sympathetic representatives, but found that Califano and President James Carter were reluctant to face them. In fact, they both literally slipped out the back each time Human and her colleagues attempted to confront them. Human and her colleagues decided to take advantage of the contradiction between these actions and Carter's open-door administration slogan. They would force Califano and Carter to face the choice of speaking with the demonstrators or leaving through the back door. Human and her team then made press releases pointing this out. She gives us this tagline from one such release. We remain stymied by the administration's new backdoor policy. I believe Human's sense of humor, as well as that of the people she worked with, was part of her impressive resilience. Again and again, Human and her colleagues faced discrimination, pity, dismissal. On more than one occasion, they were flat out ignored. Though Human's tone is at points somber or enraged, it is never disheartened. Human maintains a level of hope and humor that has clearly served her well. If I were her publisher, I might have encouraged Human to focus, at least for a chapter, on her internal struggles. Much of this book gives us a personal insight on a larger movement, but I am left wondering how Human surmounted personal obstacles. She must have felt scared or unsure of her place at times. Was she hurt by those in the women's movement who ignored her, frustrated with the nag of sexism throughout her career? Though she hints at this, her focus in remembering is the same as it was in life, the work. I would have appreciated a more explicit and vulnerable self-analysis. More than a remembrance, this memoir feels like a handbook on advocacy. Through Human Story, we learn about the tactics she and the other members of the disability rights movement used, the ways they came together, the culture they created, and how they not only survived, but thrived. As Human tells us, most things are possible when you assume problems can be solved. Human, always a teacher, uses her book to pass on to us the lesson her mother passed to her so long ago. How to make a fuss. Pulsifer's analysis is a stark reminder that while we move forward every day, there are areas of life that seem like they're moving backward. Within Hannah Swartz, you're going to take the poodle to see Macbeth. The narrator relegates their experiences of watching her father deal with her mother's Alzheimer's. The story can be a grim reminder of the harsher reality of living with such a condition, and Swartz's story broaches the subject with poignancy and honesty. This essay is titled, You're Going to Take the Poodle to See Macbeth? I was in Santa Cruz visiting my father and stepmother, Gloria. We were on our way to a neurologist appointment for Gloria's fading memory. 
after taking a walk along the cliffs, overlooking the ocean, stopping at the lighthouse to listen to the sea lions and watch the early morning surfers ride the waves. I was driving, Gloria in the passenger and my dad in the back seat. In the rear view mirror, I could see dad with a moleskin pad on his lap. This was not unusual. There was rarely a time I ever saw him without pen and paper scribbling. He was a poet. Why aren't you married? Gloria asked me. She'd been asking me this for the past 25 years, including six times since we had left the house 20 minutes earlier. I have a husband, she said. I've always had a husband. I don't always know where he is, though. Well, my father said, right now he's in the back seat. She turned to look at him. Oh, aren't I lucky? He's very handsome. What was that, Dad? asked. She said she's lucky, Dad, lucky to have a handsome husband. It was at that moment on Highway 17, driving Gloria's 1998 gold Honda, that I sensed something within Dad was shifting. It was subtle. Looking back, I see it as my father, five years after Gloria's diagnosis of Alzheimer's, finding a way to respond as the writer he is. In turn, Gloria's experience also began to change. For the first time, she felt he was really listening to her in a way that he never had. She felt heard. Compatibility Plus, a dating service? That's how your father and I met, Gloria asked. She loved hearing the story of how they met, and I loved telling it. Yes, I said, but I had to push him to go. It's just a date, I told him. I could tell something was missing. He was withdrawn, lonely. You didn't want to go, Gloria asked, turning to Dad. I don't see why not. I'm a catch, a beautiful woman. I've always been a beautiful woman. But he did go, Gloria. He went off in his old avocado green Volvo with pink roses, chocolate-covered cherries, and his latest book, A Much Married Man. I told him to leave the book, but he took it anyway. And you know what? When he got home that night, he told me, your playing Cupid paid off. What did you pay to meet me? Gloria asked my dad, not waiting for a reply. I got you for half price. I bargained with the matchmaking man. Sometimes he'd miss what she said and ask her to repeat it. But she couldn't remember. She couldn't backtrack in time. I watched as he listened, sometimes writing down what he heard. He was all there with her in a way I'd never seen during their 30 years together. I mean, with her in the here and now. His, his hazel eyes alive, looking into hers and hers looking into his. I could tell she felt heard. She was heard. Isn't that what we all want? To be seen and heard? I mean, really seen and heard. Gloria, I'd ask, do you know you have what every woman wants in this world? I do. Yes, you have a husband who listens. She'd smile, almost mischievously. I know I do, honey. I am and have always felt I'm the luckiest girl in the world.
it wasn't always this way. In the beginning, it was hard, very hard. Seeing my dad try and cope with her diagnosis, her phases of forgetfulness, getting lost on her way home in the car, having her license taken away, her anger. One time I was visiting and staying in dad's writing studio. Early one morning, she swung open the door. Why the fuck are you here? Get out of my house. I was terrified. What was this going to be like for my dad? How was he going to cope? For the first time in his life, at the age of 75, he experienced writer's block. Words had been his world. Gloria had been his world. Now both, as he had known, were gone. He sought therapy. His therapist suggested that he go to a support group. He went one time. It was too much too soon for him to hear all the experiences of husbands and wives forgetting who their kids were, how to eat, to shower, the need to wear and have diapers changed, having to put their loved ones in a home. The isolation and day-to-day copings of the one you love going away. He was very clear that he would never put Gloria in a home. He withdrew more and more into himself. On our long walks on the wooded trail, he didn't say a word. We walked in silence. It wasn't a shared silence though, not like how it used to be between us. He was somewhere else, almost as if the towering redwoods had swallowed him deep into the forest and he was gone. I missed having him with me. I missed Gloria too, the Gloria and the father I had known. I loved and loved my stepmother. My heart broke. I went through anger, resentment, fear, and most of all, fear for dad. How? How would he cope? I never would have suspected the change that would occur not only with Gloria, but also with dad and their relationship. I returned to that moment in the old Honda Accord, an ordinary day on the freeway, going to a doctor's appointment visiting and trying to be a good doctor, a good stepdaughter, showing up for those we love. My father scribbled trying to get down the essence of Gloria's amusing, often startling words. Once we had gotten tickets to Shakespeare Santa Cruz. What do you mean she's coming with us? You're going to bring Cosette to see Macbeth? I know she's a service dog, but she's not going to like it. She doesn't know the play. She'll be bored. She'll be so bored. They became part of his book, Love Has Made Grief Absurd. It's been two years since Gloria passed. She still speaks as strong as ever. And my dad, in the true nature of a poet, still listens, savors, and writes. Chelsea Malia Brown's poem, Lost in the Chaos and the Calm, serves as a nice reminder that sometimes all you need to do is let go. Lost in the Chaos and the Calm Today, I let my mind wander. This time, I didn't stop it as it tried to slip past me. I didn't wrap its strings around my fingers. I let it tug the rope and unravel. I let it sail away.
In the poem At Sea by Faye L. Loomis, the speaker contemplates their life and mortality as they traverse the harsh weathers of life. Let's take a listen. At Sea by Faye L. Loomis. A tsunami of images and information began to saturate my brain last winter. Scary protective gear, intubated elders in overcrowded hospitals, and spiking statistics of the infected and the dead pounded my senses. Mixed messages on how to cope added to my anxiety and feelings of helplessness. I learned that at age 83, with a history of a heart attack and stroke, I was at high risk for a visit from the Grim Reaper. I began to drown in waves of fear. The virus stormed on, and I had to sort out what was in my ability to control. I shifted my source of information from TV to online, where I could limit information and images. My nerves began to settle down. When Jeremy came to plow my driveway and shovel my back walk, I asked him to hollow out a space from the two-foot swell of snow on the deck to hold a chair. No longer to, able to take long walks after a stroke three years ago, I needed to break through my confines, be embraced by nature. The brisk air, sun, and snowy quiet had a calming and nurturing effect. The deck felt like a solid port in a sea of chaos. I was disappointed that my longtime writers group was on hiatus took the plunge and accepted an invitation to join an online workshop. The friendly poet spurred me on and helped fill the loneliness gap. I hunkered down and wrote like I never have. Wave after wave of acceptances flowed in. I felt anchored, my mind less adrift. I started to believe I was going to make it safely to shore. I wrote this story two years ago at the beginning of the pandemic. Since then, another heart attack and a mysterious fall have come into my life. As I read this piece today, I am reminded that I am always on my way home. Within Dalen Kerrigan's poem, Cochlea, the speaker reflects on what they hear from the world and what they will miss as their hearing slowly fades away. This poem serves as a gentle reminder that one should never take things for granted. Cochlea by Dalen Kerrigan The seashell inside my ear is balding. The bristles fall out in waves, polluting the fluid of the canal. But the shell is not broken. It came this way, being flushed out day to day with sound until I wake to find none left. I do not always mind the thought of this. I have heard more than I should, but I know that I will miss his groggy good morning when his voice is deeper, too deep to find its way through the canal and into the last thinning hairs of my tiny seashell. When I wrote this poem, I hoped to reveal the intimacy of sound and the near invisible influence it has to turn a seemingly mundane moment into one with tremendous impact, 
which is the reason for the subtle romantic twist in the poem. I hope readers take this piece and ask themselves what sounds are available in their lives that may be more intimate than they initially thought. Poet and writer Hudson Plum says his work draws a lot of inspiration from his time living remotely near a river on the border of Oregon and California. Within his poem, At the River, Remembering, it's hard not to hear the influence. At the River, Remembering by Hudson Plum. Smoke disappearing into water is how we remember her finally. Gray confetti in the breeze when we let go of her. The blue ridge topography of the backs of her hands. The fingerprint of her voice still pressed against our ears. We try not to remember her in the red velvet room bruised by the air like a peeled apple and her leaden arms filled with ice water. Forced to endure the carpeted wing of a way station with Muzak spinning like cotton candy around the walls and manicured angels murmuring arrangements down the hall. Until at last we come to remember her here by cupping her ashes in our hands and leaning over gingerly to release the dust of her minerals. What more can we hold? I began writing poetry over 40 years ago and have been fortunate to have poems published in Kaleidoscope beginning in 1988. Throughout my life, I've spent considerable time on a remote river near the border of Oregon. My experiences there and surrounding events have deeply influenced my work and were the inspiration for this poem. For me, it's the language of this poem that truly resonates and the delivery sends a shiver down my spine. I remember a friend of mine used to have a saying comparing stress to a fiery rock that you must hold in your hands. Try and hold onto the rock too tightly and it will only burn you. But if you keep your hands open, eventually the fires will die down. Originally seeing publication in Rattle, Robin Knight's Shoalfish explores the idea of what it may take to not do something on your own. Shoalfish by Robin Knight. I swim with others. Some are dolphins, some are sharks. Which is which depends on the temperature of the water or the weather, something, it's not clear. From whale song to hammerhead thrash, they change their tune at the drop of a mask over the side, pulled deep by invisible cable to pressurized obscurity. Before I know it, the warm blue shallows shelve into coldness. Gloom wraps me in panic. I pray. My prayer says, even turtles nip if they think you're edible. Overwhelming, but it's either that or swim alone. Often, one of the most difficult things in the world of medicine is maladies that focus on the mind. Getting a proper diagnosis can often be a challenging due to the symptoms only being in the patient's head. Connie Borglione's Please Pay at the Reception Desk on Your Way Out explores the darker side of this situation. Please Pay at the Reception Desk on Your Way Out by Connie Borglione. No one is saying that your illness is in your mind. 
you may well find yourself having all sorts of physical symptoms, but our tests are the source that we base our opinion on. They are the best of what we have to offer. They should put your mind at rest. The small anomalies are meaningless, I'd like to proffer, but any serious illness would leave a trace behind. But we haven't found anything. You should be reassured that your test results are so good. Nevertheless, we would like to recommend a treatment of exercise and therapy. You must avoid becoming deconditioned and depressed. This has been proven helpful in some cases. No, we are not familiar with the studies you are citing. We have our own evidence that we base our recommendations on. We don't know about any fudging of facts, nor of this new research, except that they haven't found anything. I'm afraid we can help you any more than we have. Why don't you just go for a walk in the sunshine? Let us know if there's anything else. Come back another time. My assistant will take your payment. This poem is about my experience trying to get a diagnosis for ME or chronic fatigue syndrome. Even though this illness is clearly debilitating, it can take years to receive a diagnosis and patients are often not taken seriously. And there is currently no cure. Sharon Hart Addy is a former teacher and part-time writer out of Wisconsin. Her work has appeared in Whimsical Winter Wonderland, Mystery Magazine, and Heartbreaks and Trues. She enjoys writing and hopes that her words expands the experience and understanding of her readers. Here's her short story, Rehabbing. This story takes a look at what a surprise buying a new home can be. Rehabbing by Sharon Hart Addy the old farmhouse sat in a neighborhood of more modern homes. It needed siding, windows, and a new roof. Inside, the faded wallpaper had to go. The wood floors needed finishing. Everything painted needed sanding and repainting. And the kitchen and the bathroom were from another century. The house was in bad shape, but it appealed to us. Well, it appealed to me. It reminded me of the house I grew up in, so I saw it as a home. Mike saw it as a challenge, and he needed one. His time in the service left him uncertain and restless, uneasy with sudden noise, unable to sleep all night, and his injuries, though healed, had him questioning his physical ability. Rehabbing the house, Doing the physical labor and seeing the results might be just the thing to soothe him, to help him settle, to bring him back to who he had once been. We bought the house in January at the end of the first semester and moved in over a weekend. Everything we had in the apartment fit into the living room, and that's where we left it. Our plan was to live there and spread out as we redid rooms. On Monday, I left for my new job. Mike waved from the front window as I passed our oversized metal mailbox. Below it, 
the green plastic box for the local paper hung, lopsided, on the side of the post. When I returned that afternoon, our names were on the mailbox. Black letters proclaimed, Mike and Lisa Stanford. Mike's handiwork, I was sure of that. My smile grew when I noticed that he'd straightened the green plastic paper box, too. The mailbox was empty, but a square white envelope sat in the paper box. Opening the envelope, I expected to see a note card welcoming us to the neighborhood. Instead, I found an unsigned sympathy card. For the longest while, I simply stared at it. Did someone know about Mike's PTSD? Were they sending a sympathy card because they knew how much work the house needed? Or was there something the realtor hadn't told us? Snakes in the walls or druggies using the shed out back as a drop-off point? I shuddered and hid the card in my purse so Mike wouldn't see it and get upset. The kitchen looked strangely forlorn, almost abandoned, with layers of paint outlining the cabinets and appliances, showing the room's color history. For a moment, I leaned against the door jamb and thought about the people who'd lived in the house, the ones who'd picked the colors, cherry yellow, grass green, royal blue, cherry red, white, then back to yellow, a pale hue this time. I wondered about the woman who cooked the meals and washed the dishes at the sink under the window. The thought brought an image from a picture book. An aproned mom with her hands in soapy bubbles, with a dark-haired girl about half her size standing on a box drying a plate with a huge cloth towel. The two were smiling at each other. I blinked to banish the vision and looked for something practical to focus on. The floor needed sweeping. I could do that. Splintered wood and years of dust littered the bare boards that had been under the cabinets. Broom in hand, I started at one end of the kitchen and worked toward the back door. Halfway there, where there had been enough cabinet space to form a work area, a yellowed, curling slip of paper caught my attention. I picked it up by a corner, shook it to remove some of the fine dust, and carried it to the window so I could see what it was. The writing was faint and hard to decipher, but the format suggested it was a recipe, written in a language I didn't know. I imagined how the recipe had been wedged in a crack where the cabinet met the wall so the cook could see it, and at some point slipped down behind the cabinet. Or maybe the paper fell off the counter and was accidentally bumped under the cabinet by someone shuffling their feet as they worked there. No matter how the paper got under the cabinet, I had it now. I stared at the faded blue ink and the strange words, once again caught in my vision of the past. This time, the little dark-haired girl dropped flour into a bowl while the mom stirred whatever they were making with a wooden spoon. The guys trooped in then, dispelling my imaginings. I held the paper up for them to see. Look what I found. It must have been caught behind a cabinet. I held it out. 
It's not in English. Mike took the paper, looked it over, and passed it to Jeff. Jeff studied it, then said, It might be German. There's a woman on my mail route a few blocks from here who speaks German. She might be able to translate it. Do you mind if I take it to her? Of course, I said yes. I was curious. Jeff took the paper with him when he and Mike left on their trip to the dump. That evening, Jeff called to say Greta would like to meet us. The next afternoon, when Jeff's truck rolled up the drive, we were on the back porch with four glasses and a pitcher of lemonade. He parked his truck, got out, and walked up to the house. I waved to the woman in the truck, wondering why she wasn't getting out. Jeff stopped short of the porch and sent a questioning look at Mike. Greta's daughter came, too. Minutes passed. The silent exchange between Jeff and Mike contained a world of conversation. Finally, Jeff told Mike, She's really excited. He sounded like he was pleading. Mike glanced at the sky as if he'd find a message there. Finally, he shrugged and nodded, yes. Jeff turned to me. Greta and Mimu are anxious to meet you. Mimu, I asked. Jeff grinned. A nickname from the first time she met a cow. I'll go get them. I went inside for another glass. When I walked out again, a woman about my age stood next to Jeff. He said, this is Greta, and the silly goose behind me is Diane. No, a giggly voice shouted, Mimo. Jeff stepped aside. The round face and distinctive eyes of a child with Down syndrome took my breath away. My mind slid back in time to Jane. When I saw the girl's hair was blonde and she was taller than Jane ever grew to be, I could breathe again. As a teacher, I was used to having my kids move on, but not to having them die. She'd been one of my kids, part of my daily routine for years as she moved through grade school. And then she was gone, out of my life forever, injured in a playground accident falling backwards off a swing, and having everything go wrong, even though the ambulance was there in record time and the emergency room personnel rushed to help her. Losing Jane shattered me. I wasn't able to teach or even go near the school. I mailed in my resignation, and Mike went to the school to gather my things from the desk and closet. I couldn't even do that or spend any time around children. Mike put his arm around me. I blinked my way back to the present and the girl standing in front of me, smiling. I think one of my favorite parts of that story is the realization that it's never too late to pick back up where you started. Whether it's a project or a skill, there's a chance to start something over again. Within Carol Sabata Leland's Valaquez's workshop, the protagonist is an 18-year-old maid of honor, or Menina, to the Queen of Spain. During her journey, she devises a plan to attract the attention of a young duke. 
Velázquez's workshop. We moved through brick tunnels in the Alcázar with lighted torches that stretched our shadows. Tadeo's limp was worse, and his wild black hair had reached his shoulders since the accident. If a time ever came, I thought, when we must flee Spain, would my little brother keep up? Since his mishap, which began as a prank, Tadeo moved stiffly, like an old man, not the 14-year-old that he was. Tadeo and his friends, pages all in gray doublets, had galloped into the Alcázar, past the gilded thrones, over Moorish rugs, their majesties receiving the Duke, Don Julio, back from Mexico's mines with silver trays and clay bucaros. On the liar's walk, the rumor was the king laughed at the galloping pages. He still loved pranks. But then... Tadeo's horse, Excalibur, reared, throwing my brother to the flagstones, toppling silver trays. Philip IV, wooden, dismissed my brother as palace page. To make matters worse, our adult father continued to sink us, gambling away our mother's vineyards grape by grape since her disappearance years ago. Whenever I inquired of the future, my father would quote, our lives are rivers ending in the sea. Saving my family was up to me. Soledad de Zúñiga y Mendoza. I was 18, and I would soon be too old to be what I was, a maid of honor, a menina to the Queen of Spain. A plan was in order. As we reached our tunnel exit, I smoothed my blue-green satin hoop skirts, matching my eyes, and tugged on my wig, a giant brown hair bowl with jewels. This day, our court artist, Diego Velázquez, was to paint the portrait of five-year-old Princess Margarita. The Infanta's portrait had inspired my plan. Number one, I had asked Queen Mariana to grant me the honor of attending the Infanta's portrait sitting. The little princess had high spirits and low portrait success. If I succeeded, my star would rise. Number two, I had asked Velázquez to discreetly enlist my brother as an assistant. Since his accident and difficulty moving, Tadeo had devoted his time to his art and had advanced. If Tadeo helped me, a grateful queen might convince the king to reinstate him as a page. Until then, we would take secret tunnels to the studio. Number three. I would elicit a marriage proposal from a rich, powerful Spanish nobleman. My choice was dark, handsome Don Julio, the young duke, home from running mines in Mexico. No matter if he sparked my breathing fits, no matter if my brother said, Don Julio is the devil. Since the accident had curbed him, Tadeo, ever an artist, sketched on any free surface with a sliver of charcoal, his handiwork the day of the portrait sitting surprised me at the studio's tunnel door and made me jump. Tadeo's image of Velázquez on wood, long black locks, keen dark eyes, was so alive it might be a ghost in tunnel shadows. As Tadeo and I entered the workshop, we found Don Diego in Spanish black, the skeleton key of an aposentador mayor on his belt, reading aloud from a folio to his son-in-law, Don Bautista. He said, Our lady should be painted in the flower of her youth, with fine, solemn eyes, 
with as much perfection as a human brush can muster. Velázquez removed his ivory-rimmed quevedos. So writes my own dear teacher and father-in-law, Don Francisco Pacheco, he said. Bautista, like Velázquez in coloring and stature, began his apprentice work, dabbing greens on a canvas for foliage of El Ratiro, Madrid's summer palace. Outdoors, Don Diego would capture his majesty on horseback. This work began in studio to spare fragile colors from the sun. In his short time assisting, Tadeo had learned this trick, among others, saying, my body is slower, but my eyes are faster. Deep in the Alcázar, the studio's vaulted ceilings and lofty windows allowed sunlight to stream into the heart of the room. Copies of Rubens lined the terracotta walls, highest reaches. Under the framed paintings of mythologies was a door to stairs for the Queen's Chamberlain. Next to this door hung a Moorish mirror in Peruvian silver. Don Diego had brought in one of his old paintings, The Adoration of the Magi. Our Lady in rose tints, eyes downcast, white veil hiding deep gold hair, as the artist's master described. In this epiphany, our Blessed Mother held the miracle of the infant Jesus swaddled in white weave, protected by Saint Joseph. And before them, the three wise men paid homage to our Savior on behalf of mankind. Baltasar, the African sage, kneeling in his vibrant red cape. Caspar behind him, silver-bearded, and Melchior genuflecting in colors of the earth. I studied the statue-like profile of Melchior, his strong nose and thick black hair, dark eyes absorbing the infant's peaceful gaze. My eyes were drawn to this third wise man. The Infanta Margarita appeared like a small sun in the studio, bringing her own light. She was an exquisite little girl with golden hair in her white guardainfantes, hands opening like flowers. She did not rush to embrace us as any other well-loved child might. She knew, even at her young age, that only the select were allowed near her. The Infanta Margarita appeared like a small sun in the studio, bringing her own light. She was an exquisite little girl with golden hair in her white guardainfantes, hands opening like flowers. She did not rush to embrace us as any other well-loved child might. She knew, even at her young age, that only the select were allowed near her and instantly she had us racing the four winds after her silk-slippered feet flying up and down the back stairs. You are most independent, Highness, said Don Diego, mopping his brow, ready to end the session before it had begun. Jess Pulver's poem, 30 Words, is sure to tug at the audience's heartstrings, as the reader of the poem reminds everyone that cerebral palsy can have a tremendous impact on how someone speaks. Let's have a listen. 30 words. Your speech therapist predicts you will have 30 words in your lifetime, 30 words that your own voice can say, 
all your other thoughts to be spoken flatly by your iPad, the way you order breakfast from your high chair, tapping the picture boxes we loaded onto your screen. I want a bagel smoothie, please. I turned from the counter where I'm already spreading your cream cheese one step ahead. Some things go without saying. Your bagel, my anguish. Right now at 28 months, you have one word and it's my name. You make mama mean everything. I'm awake, come lift me from my crib. Watch me stack alphabet blocks to knock down. Look what I found in the drawer. What is it called? Can we go outside? I see my stroller out the window. I'm frustrated. I'm so frustrated. All I want is to climb this ladder like that other kid. Why can't I? Why? I'm hungry. My knee hurts. My diaper is wet. I'm scared of that horse, that dog. Read me the Pied Piper. I want to snuggle blah blah. I want my nap. I want to go home. I don't like the wind. And I'm sure of it. I love you too. She says, in addition to the rest of your body, cerebral palsy affects the muscles in your lips, your tongue, even your cheeks are implicated. She uses straws, bubbles, and candles to show me how weak your breath is. She says you might be able to whisper a dozen or so more words the way you concentrate to purse out a barely perceptible P sound, like a puff of effort, and then another puh, puh. So if anyone is close enough to lean in and knows you, they understand that you said Papa. In my journal, I keep a list of sentences I yearn to hear your real voice say. My name is Leo. I'm proud of myself. My life is a beautiful adventure. I stop because that's halfway to 30 already. I want to leave room for you to tell me something I couldn't hope for. Reading your mind helps a lot. We've spent your entire life together. I'm terrified of when we can't. Your speech therapist recognizes at least your charismatic spirit. Your smile speaks like a beacon of meaning. Up next, let's take a listen to Kristen Reed's The Winged Victory of Insert Your Name. Originally seeing publication in BS Lit in 2022, this poem takes a critical approach to the definitions of beauty and explores the idea that folks should find beauty in the features that they're missing. My name is Kristen Reed, and this is my poem, The Winged Victory of Insert Your Name. These are legs, arms, hands, feet that move like stone, creating a marble statue of a long forgotten being that now exists as hardened flesh and muscle, with limbs of pain like the sharp chisel that cut them into this new creation. A statue of the likeness of a once mobile living existence, now frozen in this new form of marble to shield the destruction inside and the struggle of living beneath hardened muscles in a blank expression. 
This is the final art form of an existence cut and formed from marble and stone. And the Grecian creation asks why she could not be a watercolor painting of easy flowing movement or stained glass of ever-changing bright color to see the sun without ache. But we subject matters have no say in our composition, our medium, our final form. We can only exist as we were meant to exist, as art. Is the Venus de Milo affected by society's demands for fully intact art? Does the winged victory of Samothrace not rival all marble creations, despite its missing parts? Then are we not the winged victory of insert your name? Are we not beautiful rivals of perfections like David? Because of our marvelous strength in marble and stone, we keep existing through the freezing and through the loss of pieces that crumble and leave us with little left of our heads. We are art capturing pain, but art nonetheless that captures gods and goddesses in their own right. And there is a beauty in marble and stone. The winged victory of Samothrace is beautiful for its missing parts. The Venus de Milo is beautiful for its missing parts. Thus we, my fellow art pieces, are beautiful for our missing parts. For the marble and stone has made us the most formidable form of art. Because we know battle and we know sharp edges and we know what it is like to fight for existence. For watercolors and oils and clay do not know what it is like to be chiseled down from what they once were with tools of pain and look even more beautiful in their final form. We, marble and stone, do. So I uh, was di diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2020, and um, it has affected, obviously, my mental health, um, physical health. It's destructive in all kinds of ways. And so when I'm in pain, when I'm going through a relapse, I find art being cathartic and healing for me. So when I'm angry, when I'm hurting, I try to write that pain out onto a page. And so this was aimed at anybody dealing with a disability, chronic illness, to find solace in one another that despite these things that have happened to us, we're fighters, we're survivors, we're beautiful because of us being who we are and what makes us each our own individual selves. That concludes this episode of the Kaleidoscope podcast. I'd like to once again thank our contributors for this episode, and I'd also like to once again thank our sponsor, PNC Bank. Tune in next time for another episode of the Kaleidoscope podcast.